millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to The Chat Bus, a podcast mini-series in which we talk with fellow travellers through the films of the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm glad to be joining my route master. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Jake, welcome back for one more journey on <laughs> the double-decker chat bus we've got going on here. Can you imagine a double-decker cat bus? That would, as if the original cat bus wasn't enough of a nightmare. You had a cat bus on top of one. How would that work anatomically? I mean, would, does the normal cat bus work anatomically anyway? I mean, would the is cat it really be wearing a, a hat? Is that what the, the, the double-decker at the upper deck Oh, no, is? I just think it's, it's double, double height. Um, and there is a staircase within the cat, um, mm. considering it's already hollow. I feel like you can get away with that, adding a staircase. Well, now we're opening a can of worms of various. Imagine cat a rail buses. replacement cat bus. Or uh, yeah, like, or or because there are so many trains in Ghibli. Like, yeah, that's what true. if what, what if the train on Spirited Away dies and they have to get a rail replacement cat bus in? <laughs> I was thinking of a bendy cat bus. One of those. Long, oh yeah, it'd be a very very yeah. long cat. That sachets along. It's and is weirdly rubberized in the middle. Yeah, like a finger trap. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've yeah, the cat bus is already nightmare fuel for some people. We've just created some new ones there. Oh, but it's a if it's a rail replacement one, we've taken a suitable diversion, haven't we, away from our conversation? But now we'll get back to our destination, which is of course doing a regularly scheduled intro. Absolutely, yes. So who is our guest this week, Jake? So this week, we're very lucky to have Maisie Williams on the podcast, who is someone that I'm sure lots of listeners out there know from all her work on screen or as a voice actor as well. Um, So you might know her as Arya Stark from Game of Thrones, or you might even know her from The New Mutants. A, f- a film that you are a, you're a big fan of, Michael. Oh, I really like New Mutants. I thought that she was so good as Rain Sinclair. Uh, but I did love her turn in Carol Morley's The Falling um, in, back in 2014, which I, th- I guess was a couple of seasons into Game of Thrones. But for me, it was the, f- the first time I saw her in a, in a meaty role like that. Yeah, and, and alongside Florence Pugh as well, two like, kind of great stars just before their ascending as well. Great bit of a great bit of casting for that film as well and not just in front of the camera uh we can hear her work as a voice performer in the Ardman film early man and she's doing voice work on loads of tv shows now as well too she's everywhere and of course she's doing loads of other stuff too she's i mean in a, in a former life of mine when i was working in short films she was actually an exec producer on one of the short films that i was involved in as well so she's popping up everywhere doing lots of cool stuff and she's just about to appear in the new series Pistol. And Michael, as a big, oh, perhaps even a bigger music nerd than you are a Ghibli nerd, this is uh, getting into a period of history that you are pretty interested in. Well, I'm very curious to see this. So this is Danny Boyle's take on London 
mid-1970s rise of the punk movement as seen through the eyes of Steve Jones, the, the soon-to-be guitarist of the Sex Pistols. And this is one of those where the whole scene is being fleshed out by recognisable faces. So Maisie Williams is playing Pamela Rook, also known as Jordan, who was part of the entourage that was around the Sex Pistols at the time. If you ever saw... Um, pictures of the era and there's this very striking looking young lady with like a sort of shock of blonde hair in a, in a big quiff uh that's that's jordan um it's really funny going back to that era and looking at photographs because of course one of the other members of the entourage is alan jones who is a great horror film critic and co-director co-founder of the fright fest film festival so if you ever look up a picture of uh, the character that Maisie's playing and you see this uh, this sort of tall lanky bloke ne- next to her that's alan jones who'd go on to become a great horror film critic too let's see if he's in pistol but we do know that Maisie is <laughs> in it as, uh, as as pamela rook yeah and i had the pleasure of appearing on Maisie's podcast frank film club a few weeks ago uh to talk about a little film called ponyo and so after getting talking with Maisie about that film, it felt like she had to come on our show as well, because that is one of her all time favorites. Go and check out the podcast as well, because I suppose it's very much in our spirit of being kind of very, very welcoming, very warm, very accessible film chat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very much with the ethos of a film club. Uh, so go and check out that show. But not before you check out this one. Here she is, Maisie Williams. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Maisie Williams, it is lovely to welcome you into the walls of the Ghibliotech, the, the library of Studio Ghibli film discussion and a, a whole lot more, I suppose. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. What a privilege. I, uh, yeah, very excited to be here. Excited to chat about all things Ghibli. Michael and I have talked about this in the past. When we were studying, we were very much different people in terms of actual use of a library. Uh, in that I went to a library, took stuff out and then would never return because I found the silence actually quite intimidating. Um, would you consider yourself a, a library person? I would Indeed. I spend a lot of time at the library, actually. I like to do work there and get books out. But when I was a child, I used to get told off a lot for taking books out and then losing them and not taking them back. Um, But later in life, I have uh, more. I have my head screwed on. I remember where I put things down better now, which is good. (laughs) Oh well, it's lovely to have you here. And we, well, we, there are no, there are no fines here. Like the, we're all we're doing is taking out conversation, you know, and the, there's no deadline on that. Yes, exactly. It's a lot more approachable. <laughs> 
not so many membership <laughs> um, forms. <laughs> well, if we are going to fill in the membership form for the Ghibli Attack, there is a, a place we have to start, which is the very beginning. And we, we've covered Jake's origin story with Studio Ghibli in the past many times. I always get it wrong, though. You were watching Spirited Away on a phone. Was it, no, was it a tablet? <laughs> was on a, a bus? Uh, it's an, I, an iPad on a train. Just how many exactly wanted right. it. <laughs> <laughs> iPad so, on a bus. <laughs> um, Maisie, what was your first experience of Studio Ghibli? Um, we were living in an apartment in Paris at the time, and we were staying with some friends. Um, and one evening... Uh, we didn't know what to watch. We'd actually watched a couple of different animes. We watched one, and I never know the title of it, so I'm not even going to try. Um, but we watched one, and it was really entertaining. And then um, my friend who was showing them to me said, like, have you ever watched any Studio Ghibli films? And I said no. Um, and so she kicked us off with Ponyo, um and I was kind of like we just finished dinner and there was people were kind of settling down and I was on my phone doing emails and as soon as the opening credits started um and Ponyo's floating around in her little bubble I was just glued to the screen and my boyfriend was laughing at me because I'm I'm like a like a baby like that it's just like the bright colors and the bubbly uh, aesthetic and I was just like it's like my phone just like dropped and smashed out of my head it didn't really but uh, and then from that minute onwards I was just completely uh, hooked and l- yeah just loved the film um, and we watched it with s- subtitles um, and then since chatting with Jake I was like actually you have a good point. Like if you're always looking at the subtitles, then you're not enjoying the animation as much, which is a great point. And so I've since watched it without, um, and equally as enjoyable. Do, do you remember how your friend like pitched it to you? Like, do you know, remember what you were going to, ex- what you were expecting when you were sitting down to watch Ponyo? Yeah. Well, she really honed in on the female characters. M- mostly she said Ponyo's mother. She's my favorite character in all of the Ghibli films. She is like this massive sea goddess and she's huge and pink and glowing with light. And um, and so she, yeah, that was kind of the main focus of it. Um, I didn't really know uh, m- much else. Uh, I'd sort of seen images of other Ghibli characters. Um, uh, but I, yeah, I, I don't think she really pitched it as like Little Mermaid or anything like that. Mm. Although as I was watching it, I was like, this feels very uh, Little Mermaid vibes. Um, but yeah, she really just honed in on like the vis- the visuals of it and uh, just like how impressive this like, yeah, woman was going to be. And she was going to get there at some point in the film. So just like keep with it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I remember that. And, and then when, when she appeared, wow. It was like, it was very magical. It's a film of great mums because Lisa is just an icon as well. Yeah. Arguably the creator of the most magical moment in all of Ghibli's films, which is just making the ramen. Yeah, I know. There's actually this um, woman on uh, TikTok who makes pottery and she recently made the ramen bowls from... Uh, from Ponyo and they were just beautiful and it feels like those ramen bowls are just following me around and um, yeah such a such an incredible moment the food uh, and even when Ponyo's eating that big bit of well she's eating a steak at some point um, I haven't it's like a it big hunk of ham, really. Big hunk of ham, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it just looks delicious. <clears throat> There's something about cartoon food that's like unreal. <laughs> It's really yeah, fun. Um, I've I've been recently after um after many years of not forcing our kid to watch Ghibli films, um, because I didn't want to feel like the, the 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 parent who was counting down the days until you can show your child X, you know, whatever the whatever <laughs> the film it is you love. Um, he finally has got into Ponyo in the last week or two. Well, we've we've been um isolating at home with COVID, and he absolutely loves it. It's really fun watching that scene in particular with a three year old because. When she says, close your eyes, no peeking, he actually covered his eyes 
when she reveals the remnant and they're all gasping, he gasped as well. Oh, uh, it's, oh it's so cool to actually see that ma- that um, that magic that works on kids. Although it sounds like that's sort of your reaction to this film as well. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's just like a universal reaction to food from the day you're born to the day you die, where it's just always, always entertaining, always exciting, never lets you down, always like right there when you need it. Um, and like the whole ceremony of it i think um is uh yeah it's special it makes you feel like you're there with them yeah and it sounds like i think your your introduction to the film was was pitched just right because i think now when i talk to people about ghibli and like if i've mentioned that i do the podcast or we've done the book or anything like that like i feel like it comes with a certain weight and i think maybe this is something that why i avoided the films in the first place thinking like there's i there's too much to deal with here. Like it's too heavy. It's too intimidating. Whereas if you just pitched it as this one has an amazing giant mum in it, then <laughs> I think I'd be more more likely to to jump on it. Whereas thinking like that impending uh, kind of weight of these are the the greatest animators ever to have lived, and you need to appreciate every single frame of them. No, exactly. And I she actually didn't really say that it was like this one is a kids one you know per se or like this one is like a more grown-up one and so I kind of went through thinking that they were all made for adults but not like not uh unsuitable for children um and then sort of being introduced to some of the other pictures I realized that there are some that are just more palatable um, for like a younger audience, uh, but not having that preconception like this is for a, a kid um, mm. uh, was was really nice because I felt like I could, I don't know, maybe when you have that sort of guys, you feel like, oh, there's something in here that's like a very, very simple message and we should all do this, uh, you know. But I kind of went into it just like really kind of connecting um on a deeper level without without that like preconceived notion that that it was like you know going to be basic and little <laughs> but so, so many of the actual like most basic moments of the film are the most magical or terrifying ones i, I always think of uh lisa the mum taking a lick of her son's ice cream and just like that simple moment is so transporting and amazing and even driving a car through a storm um, yeah. is transformed into this magical thing and like watching that with a kid he's on the edge of his seat during that sequence you know it's it, it's it's really crazy but so you did go further into the library afterwards um we did where, where did you go after that was it with the same friend right afterwards we went to we went to princess mononoke mm-hmm. um which was kind of what i feel is like um well, yeah, it was just, it was like a lot of the imagery was like very hard to watch and it was like just as kind of like engaging, but it was like rep- like repulsive um, and you're kind of looking at the oil and the kind of comment on, if it's an undercurrent of a lot of the films, but like the comment on like the, the state of the world and like greed um, and uh, that, yeah, that kind of gave, gave me a whole new perspective on the, on the studio really and that um yeah it kind of didn't really it wasn't afraid to um yeah show things that are kind of grotesque but you know still in in a very entertaining way it's I, it's really interesting that you picked those or saw those two films first because if those were the first two that I watched I don't know like how I, whether I would be as invested in the studio as I as I am because those are two rare examples of films that I didn't really connect with the first time round. Interesting. Um, and so I found, and yeah, people still dig me out on Twitter for this of like saying that princess Mononoke is confusing and a bit boring and over long and it gets muddled. Uh, and <laughs> like now having watched it many, many more times, I can obviously appreciate that it's very, very, very good. Um, and that all that muddling and confusion is all part of it because there are no kind of binary lines in war and everyone is good or bad and all mm. of that stuff. Um, and then in Ponyo, I just thought this is kind of a bit... Uh, having Because we, we watched that fairly late in the podcast, yeah. when I got to it, I thought, 
oh, this is quite kind of like lighter kids fare. There's maybe not as much going on. Um, but then second time round, watching it, as, as I mentioned to you, watching it as a dub and really kind of settling in to watch the animation a bit more. I think like that is such an incredible work of animation. Like I think mm. the craft there is so, so good. And I think that like from the, maybe at that first minute when Ponyo bubbles up, your grin at that point is so big. Like it's, it's such a joyous film and that never disappears. Like mm. it's, I know like Totoro is a pretty high benchmark for joy on film. But Ponyo is a very close rival for that. It's just so thrilling and exciting, but happy for for like what is it, a hundred minutes, which is a rare, rare thing. Maybe only rivaled by like a Paddington or something. Mm. No, I, but I think that that honesty is so important because I think that we are so influenced by what other people tell us, um, and especially like the order in which you watch these films. I think that does have an impact on on how you view them because. I actually watched My Neighbor Totoro last night um, and I, I did love it and I did find it, I was beaming the whole way through, but because I have this special experience with Ponyo now, I, I, I can't, you know, it can't take first place over that. And I think that there's just, it's, you know, I can, I, you know, I appreciate all of the films for, for the reasons that many people do. Um, but I think that, yeah, I think it's important, you know, to, to be honest about that because um, there's a lot of pressure in, mm. in all kind of like movie reviews, but like this studio in particular holds like such an important place to, to so many people. But um, yeah, I think that that, uh, yeah, I think that, I think that it's, it's good that you've sort of say, you know, said that. <laughs> it doesn't so matter that, what they say, what they think. Is that a 7 out of 10 for Totoro then? No. <laughs> I, it's, still, it's still a... Oh gosh, I'm really bad at this. I just want to give everyone like a 9.5 always. Um, this is the, with this studio, it's probably accurate to give it all 9.5. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I did love it. And actually, do you know what? One thing that... Um, I think Totoro holds over Ponyo is the music. I thought the music was was something very special that I would enjoy in all parts of my life and my personality, you know? Um, mm. Like kind of transcends the film. Whereas Ponyo, I think like, you know, matches the film so beautifully, uh, but it's not something that I would enjoy so much outside of it. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're close. No, 9.5 and a nine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> The music is amazing in Totter. I think what's amazing about that is a, a bit like like the great John Williams scores is that not only does he great create one great melody, like there are multiple yeah. memorable melodies coming out of Totoro. And, they, and like one will just appear in your head in the morning and it's there all day. And like yeah. I'll follow my dog around going... Oh God, yeah, I- it's such a good score. We were we were actually chatting with Craig Roberts yesterday um, for his new film, The Phantom of the Open, and he was talking about creating like an an arsenal of songs to listen to while he's editing, and then also to sort of put into his films. Um, but he was saying like he's got this like he's got this backup playlist, which is like his you know his his trump card and uh he he's basically used them all in in either the picture that he's just about to do or phantom of the open i can't remember um uh and he's like i, I just don't know what i'm gonna do now. i'm gonna have to find like a bunch more songs and 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 it's kind of incredible that there's so many different um soundtracks from the different movies that still have like equally as strong hooks and um just like what do they call it when it's like a character uh, like character themes you know mm-hmm. um it's really something very special a, a question that's always about Totoro that's always really um illuminating is how would you describe what Totoro is everyone has a different way of describing what he is well it's so interesting because before I watched the film like I just see I'd seen a lot of images and when he's first introduced they are first introduced in the film uh I was like I don't recognize Totoro without his without their eyes because mm-hmm. they have their eyes closed um yeah. and so I would say like 
The body is a bear, but the face is a rabbit. (laughs) 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 How would you guys describe? And and there are whiskers as well, so it's got a sort of cat-like kind of quality too. True. (laughs) Or or, there's still like a little bunny rabbit has little twitchy whiskers. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot. I've I've gone with um, owl bear. Owl as well, yeah. Owl. But I think the owl is maybe coming from the image of um, Totoro in the tree with the ocarina. And that, that's maybe where the owl is coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe less in the features. And he doesn't really... I mean, when he's in, you know, standing, he doesn't really have legs. He just has feet, like like, like a bird, in a way. Yeah. Um. <laughs> just like <laughs> perching. <laughs> that is a very good point. I like didn't even really question it. <laughs> just like, but that's yes. what's amazing about it is just you just accept him straight away as he accepts everyone. He's just mm-hmm. that, that that warm hug of a character. Um, yeah. And I think bet- between those three Miyazaki's, um, Totoro, Mononoke, and Ponyo, the, like the invention there, the character invention is so impressive. Like whether that is something kind of warm and fuzzy like Totoro, or the way that Ponyo transforms from the goldfish creature to the slightly creepy half human half chicken bird fish hybrid (laughs) to then the the bundle of joy that is ponyo as well Mm -hmm. it's amazing yeah i and that's um i love hanging out with my nieces and nephews because they always just talk about impossible creatures and impossible things that like imagine if a zebra had a you know and I think what yeah what these characters these made-up characters do is like they make so much sense while also being like completely fictional and brand new and I think Mm. that kind of playfulness and just um uh just like the commitment uh just is good for our like far too uptight and sensible minds um and it's just really nice to submit to it um, and I think it's really good for adults to do that more often because kids just have these incredible imaginations. Um, and, yeah, and yeah, yeah, it's very true. And I think some, it's something that brushes up against like Western animation a lot is that I think from the Disney stuff and that side of things or whatever it might be, there is such a focus on on logic and rules whether that is in the characters or in the storytelling and that everything has to pay off by the end and everything needs to be all set up all the time and a character has to have motivations for every element of their story but also their appearance as well and that's the the wonderful thing about the Ghibli films is that a character can kind of look and feel totally original they don't have to feel like they are an element that is serving some plot and they can just dip into a scene for 10 minutes disappear we never see them again and that's fine and Mm. it doesn't hit all of those story beats that maybe we're used to feeling yeah so i think like that's what's so refreshing about watching the films is that they are they are really incredibly satisfying as stories but they're approaching how that story is told and who is telling who is the focus of that story in a very different way Mm. they feel very spiritual they feel like they've got um uh they just have like a lot of well just like a very self-aware and like connected like motivation behind it and um yeah I think that that journey for any individual person like a spiritual uh journey or understanding of like yourself um it comes with uh it's not linear and it's not um it's like full of kind of contradictions and like little pieces that pull together to make like a a more fulfilling life journey and I think in these films like you can really feel that and when you kind of hammer that out of something uh because you want to make order it tends to lose some of the life and um yeah I think that that's something that these films hold above uh so much um yeah and that's what makes that's what makes a princess mononoke so rewarding because i i think in a there is a different version of princess mononoke where all the themes have been heavily underlined all of the plots entwined by the end of it and actually you think well what would i would i get much from a rewatch of this right if like if if all of the problems have been solved and i understand everything or 
do we have the perfect Princess Mononoke that we've got and we can just go back to it all the time and get something new out of it? Mm. So true at different points in your life. Yeah, they're rewatchable films. D- did you ever make it as far as Kiki's Delivery Service? Because I think, if you've not watched it, strongly recommend it because I think that's another one which doesn't give easy answers but is very much about the journey of life and what it throws at you. I never got as far as Kiki's Delivery Service, although that's one that is thrown up on my Netflix very, very often. So I think Netflix knows, and Netflix knows a lot about me. So, And that, that's absolutely one as well, that um, you talk about films that get different different meanings throughout history, throughout people's lives. That's one that maybe a lot of you know, Ghibli fans or anime fans probably watched as kids, maybe. Right. But it's now been seen as the ultimate quarter-life crisis movie the ultimate millennial <laughs> angst movie because it's i have this i have this strange talent of being a witch and i can fly but what do i actually do i've now got to go out in the world and get a job what does that mean um, and it's all and there's some great think pieces out there sort of viewing it through the lens of burnout and all sorts of very yeah know, 20 stop, 20... stop respecting the hustle yeah, exactly 2020 <laughs> buzzwords <laughs> that sounds brilliant I love the way that you've just pitched that I feel like I have an in now oh, well uh, something that I wanted to talk about because uh, Michael and I are, are no acting experts or animation experts from the practical side of things um, you mentioned going back and watching the English version of Ponyo and admiring the animation but also some incredible voice performances from the likes of Liam Neeson and Tina Fey um you have done voice acting as well is there something that you see in these films that maybe you I suppose it must be quite different because it's a, a Japanese version and an English language version mm. um but Ghibli are regarded as doing particularly good English versions or dubs do you pick up on that I think that I think well I don't have a lot else to compare it to um but one thing that I think we're so used to hearing in like an English speaking animation is just an perhaps like an over yeah an over application of breaths and efforts to give the world life but I think with uh Ghibli films you don't really you don't really miss that or want that so much because I think the score and the um just the way that the world kind of moves and interacts is like engaging in itself but then when you hear it with the English dub it feels um it feels like colder in comparison to what you're kind of used to hearing I think um but I don't want to say that it does well I don't know that's just the way it comes off to me a little it fact, feels like it doesn't fit <laughs> a, re- a little bit it's really fascinating you pick up on th- all of these extra sounds even if it's just sort of non-verbal human sounds mm. that are on the soundtrack because that's something that they picked up on when disney started doing the dubs in the early 90s and ghibli sent like a delegation over to go through the entire english dub and like itemize everything they've added a lot of the stuff they added was sound effects Mm. And it's clearly the Japanese style is one that's a bit more minimal and allows the music to carry you rather than having to add um, grunts or breaths or other little donks in the background. Yeah. Uh, trusting the audience, maybe. Yeah. And I think it is just something that we do a lot more. And even like when you're, even if you're watching something that's not an animation um, and I was, what was I watching last night? I was watching Silver Linings Playbook um, and just every single time Jennifer Lawrence is walking with her high heels, it's just like so unbelievably clear that they've got someone doing it in like a Foley, is it what it's called? Foley? Yeah. 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 And I I, I do find it really distracting anyway, Um, but it's something that we're just like obsessed with, like the sound of every little thing and... Yeah, I, I don't know if you really need that so much in animation, especially in something like this, because everything does feel so perfect. And like in a, I'm not, in like a soft and like, you know, like in my dreams, do I hear my water bottle clanging every single time I put it down? Like, I don't mm-hmm. know if I do. Um, 
And I, I think there's something about that in these movies that works so well in in Japanese. And then, yeah, kind of when you hear it kind of dubbed over, it feels feels like a lot. <laughs> yeah. And so when you get into a booth uh, yeah. to do your part of uh, the of voice acting um, and with animation, everything is already done. Like they've already, they've kind of already laid stuff out they might have already if you're coming in late in the game it's already done or coming in early in the game there's nothing to go on um so what have been your experiences of doing that and compared to I don't know, what people might be used to seeing is just like seeing you on screen as as yourself or as a mm. character compared to your voice acting work so i did a show i've done a two series of a show called gen lock um and it's kind of like post well I mean well, saying post World War 3 when I first started this was like years in the future um, but now that's feeling like scarily close by um, but it's kind of like it, yeah our society has sort of like crumbled and then there's like something which is kind of like the UN and they uh, um, are coming back together to sort of solve everything and there's like a like a a team of like avengers who are summoned to you know uh, fight against the bad people um <laughs> amazing pitch by the way uh, <laughs> but when they pitched that there was images of the different characters um and that was it that was all we really knew and so i knew that they wanted an accent and i had read the script um but you just can't, you can't picture it because when someone says, and you know, she says this and then she flies off, you're kind of like, how am I, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> like, how do I kind of bring, bring, you know, any sense of like, you know, my own life into this. But I think the main thing is, is like a director, a director of something like this. They are incredible at building the world for you. So as you can stand in a studio on Zoom, I didn't have anyone with me. Um, and they can build out the entire scene, voice all of the other characters in your ear, you know, all of the stage directions, everything that's happening. And then you come in and you say your piece. Um, and I think that was the, you know, the, the only way to get through it. And I think, you know, from my limited experience, you know, moving forwards, it's all director led. And I think you can, as an actor, you can, you can do many different animated stories. But if you, if you, ha you need to have that director who can build that world, world for you, because otherwise it's just, um, yeah, it's just very lonely and it's very confusing and, um, yeah, there's there's none of your usual kind of uh, inspirations to get you to a point where you can perform. Um, and then you'll kind of come back right at the very end when everything is done and they'll be changing the story and changing pieces and knitting it together. And I've never had to do my voice to match the animation uh, yet. Um but they'll sometimes have a rough track, a wild track. Actually, when I did, a, I did an Ardman thing, they had a wild track. And that was just really humiliating because the wild track was so good. <laughs> I just thought, <laughs> why, am I, why am I here? They've nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, I guess with Ardman, actually, they do start a lot earlier just because the nature of stop motion um, mm. is so much longer. Um, but yeah, I've come at it from both angles, I guess, actually. Um, and it's it's great. And I don't have to wear any hair and makeup. Okay. <laughs> it's a dream. <laughs> Isn't it um, for the Simpsons? They like you know, the, the old cast members love coming back because they can do it in the bath. They, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the key voice actors don't yeah. even have to get out of bed now to, to do yeah. all those it, characters. It is really really bizarre. Um, yeah, totally different way of working, but just for an actor you really do you feel like just an actor and it's like very humbling because you're like i am i'm not important to this <laughs> and, and I, well i suppose like when you're doing stuff live in live action and you're in costume and you're in a in a set you kind of have a sense of what the scene will look like 
So it must be bananas when one of these TV shows comes out and you look at it and you think, oh, that's where I was this whole time. Yeah, exactly. And they go, yeah, it's like you're you're in the barracks, like you're you're sort of like in in like a bedroom of sorts, but then you go into the metaverse. So you're kind of like in both places at once. And this, you, you, at one point you'll look like this and then the other point you'll be like as your kind of avatar self. And I'm like, uh, okay, <laughs> got it. <laughs> It's like you can just do impossible things, which is special. And so moving away from acting, um, I want to talk about Ghibli kind of as storytellers informing what you do now, because you, you have your production company wrapped and you want to be telling stories in film and you're looking at animation as well. Um, what are you seeing in Ghibli films? And then I suppose, what do you view in animation as an opportunity for storytelling and where your interests might go as a storyteller yourself? Mm. Well, I think actually you kind of really touched on it earlier and it's um, what I love about uh, the way that Ghibli, the studio Ghibli tells stories um, is that there is a lot that you can interpret yourself um, and there isn't the sort of confines of... Uh, just everything having a reason and a meaning and a purpose. Well, they do, but it's for you to kind of like understand why. And I think what I love about animation as an art form is um, that there are no rules and that you can, um, as a producer, you're constantly reading scripts thinking, well, you know, how are we going to do that? How is this going to work? How can we make this neat and tidy and clean and how can we you know get real people or or you know real action to kind of flow but when you when you move into animation um you can really just focus on the characters and like their own uh, expression but in terms of the world around them and how that flows it's so much there's so much more freedom um and I think like the way that we kind of do it in the West where we just try and sh shoehorn the way that we make live action films into sort of animation, you kind of lose some of that sense of, um, well, yeah, flow. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we, animation kind of lets you tell, you know, still very touching and meaningful stories, but because you can make a world um, just, uh, you can make a world, you know, be its own character almost in it. Um, it's less important to just like nail down all of the the com complicated parts and, and yeah, you can kind of just have it flow. I just keep saying flow and well, free. Well, no, I, I think flow <laughs> is, is a great word to use because I think you see that in Isao Takahata's films more than Miyazaki's films where you're seeing the, the brushwork, you're seeing the, the line of the artist, you're seeing the tactility of the form mm -hmm. and you're seeing like that the flow, the literal flow of it and how a character might move from scene to scene and the artifacts of that are there. And you, like you mentioned Aardman and you worked with, like they're another one where like you see the fingerprints on the plasticine, that you see a person has made that. Like there is a real kind of link between the artist and the audience in that way. Yeah. There's a stop uh, motion short film that we made at Raps that is called Salvation Has No Name. Um, and it's uh, the materials that was, it's kind of, um, it's a story about, uh, well, it's sort of a comment on like the refugee crisis and like, m you know, millions of people being displaced and how that look, how that feels entering into a completely new community and society and the sort of complications that come with that. And so you can touch on really hard hitting things, but something about the texture of the way that it's been made, um, all of the materials are natural. Um, our director kind of picked up pieces of driftwood from the side of the road or like branches and dried, uh, just like natural material. Uh, and feeling the way that that kind of flows in the film um, and like faking the water as like kind of a dirty old bin bag. Um, it just feels... It feels like barren, but it feels um, like there's life there or there was once life there. And there's something about that, which is just a nice undercurrent to the whole 
to the whole story um and something that you, you you know you just can't do and it's a lot you know it's like a lot cheaper when you're doing it in a stock if you wanted to you know make a boat in real life that's like impossible but you can make something so tiny and you know these materials are so easy to um kind of come across and although there's like a lot of complications it's like amazing the the other part of the creativity that you can bring to doing stop motion animation yeah is having done a little bit of animation myself like it's the the joy of having total control to make this thing exactly how you want it to look is brilliant but the fact that what you want to do is going to take you about a year to give you like a few minutes uh is is the other side of that coin i suppose yeah yeah there's patience there's a lot of patience and you're like oh there's so much love that went into it it's like yeah because every single frame someone touched that puppet and moved it the tiniest little amount so yeah you can really feel like yeah you can feel the love that went into it well i think speaking of feeling the love i think we should talk about your podcast as well because i think um because i had the pleasure of coming on to frank film club and i think there's a there's a philosophy to it that certainly kind of carries over to what we try and do here on ghibliotech which is more of an kind of accessible welcoming tone of voice and kind of the 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 anti-cine bro feel i suppose would be appropriate (laughs) Yeah, it's just become so simple to destroy people's life work. And I think that um, the the critique sort of element is just um, somewhat sadistic at times. And I just think that it's really nice to appreciate all kinds of work and even acknowledge that it's not maybe for you if, if you're not into it. Um, but getting people to watch things is just important and... And, you know, understanding what you appreciate about something is like takes a lot more concentration than choosing the things that you hate about it. And that's what I like about what you guys do. Um, You just really open up this world to so many people. And it's it's special. It's a gift. What from the podcast so far has been the best film to discover or rediscover or revisit? Um, well, we watched, we watched Portrait of Lady on Fire in our first series and, um, that was, you know, wonderful and it was such a compelling film and it was great for the audience, but great for us, loved it. And then the second series we watched, Celine Siama's film, um, Petit Maman, and I really had no idea what to expect when I went into it and it just it felt I mean it felt it felt like you know her film but it it just it was it was really lovely to enjoy something just also because the reason why we do this um it was nice to enjoy something that I didn't know if other people had watched or liked and I hadn't read many reviews about or you know seen much about it because then you can kind of start trusting your own judgment um and that's like what what you guys do here it's so easy to just regurgitate what other people feel and anyway it was a magical experience and it was the it was my own connection to Celine's filmmaking without this you know portrait of Lady on fire oscars you know kind of buzz it was nice to to sort of discover that from myself almost and be like I agree. I think Celine Sierra is amazing. <laughs> but know that that was my own judgment. And um, yeah, it was special. She's she's did something really incredible with that film. Very simple. It's an absolutely beautiful film and very relevant for us because in many interviews she talked about how it was deeply inspired by Miyazaki's films and Ghibli films. And <sighs> the closest she said she'd ever get to making an anime. Um, she's worked in animation separately as well, but... Um, yeah she was dropping a lot of a lot of references that we picked up i love that yeah and even them making their pancakes oh gosh such a beautiful scene yeah Yeah. i really see that actually i see that now that's special and even something as simple as that sense of flow like go along with it don't ask too many questions about how this is happening the plot is happening this sort of time slip where you're meeting your mum as a kid just go with it go with the emotions Mm. um there's something there and also it is about processing grief and reaching some deeper truth but it's also from a kid's point of view it's a lot of a lot of Miyazaki stuff in there I think 
Yeah. Oh, whilst exactly. also being very Siamma, I don't want to. I think she's an amazing filmmaker in her own right. Of course. Yeah. Well, I, I, that moment in the first few minutes where she's feeding her mum what's it's from the back of the car through to the front is I think that's an extremely Ghibli an extremely Miyazaki moment as well it's tying food and very deep emotions without revealing too much whatsoever just keeping it absolutely simple but mm. in keeping it that simple it just absolutely rips your heart out <laughs> yeah it's such a special moment that image it's true I can see that as an animated image um and she just you know she created something so special uh, yeah. And it's true, the, the sense of it, because that was when we went and did the podcast episode, you know, Hannah threw out the question. She was like, so so what's what is this then? Is this time travel? Is mm. this like her imagination? Like, what are we doing here? And I thought, gosh, I don't even thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Time travel. Like, oh, but I guess that is like a pretty integral part of it. Um, but y- yeah, you would never pitch the film that way, you know, um, just like you wouldn't, you know. You wouldn't pitch a lot of Miyazaki films as like, it's a comment on uh, the environment and the war tale. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't sell tickets. No. <laughs> <laughs> and that dual, like the dual storytelling, I think is like, is a talent. It's a real talent. Yeah. Oh, and, and going back to kids' performances some very special ones in that one as well yeah yeah i actually i remember hannah diving into how they found those girls um i can't remember what they did now but there was a cool casting story with those two i think one of them might know celine maybe her niece or something like that can't remember We've, we've talked a lot through this about how films are pitched to us and how we pitch films and literally pitching films just then like how would you pitch ponyo um when you're recommending a film to someone, Maisie, what's your sort of foolproof way of doing it? Do you focus in on a specific performance or craft or, or the genre? How do you do it? A giant mum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a massive mum. She's beautiful. Um, what I have started doing now is I don't say my opinion on a film, but I say why I think that it's important, why I think that it, like the construction of the film is good. Um, and why I think that it's, like, important to watch, maybe related to that person in particular, like, why I think that they would enjoy that. Maybe it's because, you know, the story is, like, maybe, you know, not something that you would go for, but I find the soundtrack and, like, the editing, I find it to be very similar to this film, which I know you like. And and so I really try and go about it more of an, like, an objective way um, than, like, a subjective way, because I think that then when someone watches it they want they want to feel what you're feeling when you're say talking about it and you're saying oh my god it made me feel so good and it was so funny and so and then they want to feel that so badly when they're watching it that they they can't if they don't feel that because everyone you know emotions are created very differently for different people Mm. then they'll immediately think oh I don't think I enjoyed it um because you know they and and then also you you kind of tarnish the conversation that you'll have afterwards because then it becomes about whether or not they agree with you rather than this is what I got from this film and then you your own views are challenged and you can you know so I try I try and just go objectively uh and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't How, how do you guys pitch films to people well, it's funny, actually, that sort of that division you just said between the subjective response and the objective background is sort of the way we divide the podcast up. Yeah. I talk about why a film is important, sort of behind the scenes and the yeah. craft and everything. And then Jake comes in with, I thought Princess Monoki was boring. <laughs> <laughs> and both are valid. Although off, off, off microphone, I think, Jake, you, you and I are probably quite similar in terms of the craft yeah. and the objective stuff. Oh yeah, well, I, 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 my girlfriends still only watch two Ghibli films, so it's like I don't think you, you don't want to come to me for prowess in terms of recommending stuff, or at least trying to convince people to watch them. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, one day, um, but I think Michael, that onto a conversation about how do we pitch what we should be watching. You have perfectly set us up for our last question. Um, now. Interestingly, we already had someone recommend Celine Siama as a potential mm. filmmaker that we could tackle on the podcast coming up. And she has, as you said, explored animation herself. But we always like to be pushed in new directions with our guests. So Maisie, we've watched all the Ghibli films. We've looked at Satoshi Kon. We've looked at Cartoon Saloon. 
where do we go next? big question and there's so many places that you can go and once you take your next turn there is multiple others that you can go down afterwards um but in thinking about this one filmmaker or writer both that i really like is alex garland and i think that there's not a huge huge arsenal uh, but there are a lot of incredible pictures um, that he's written or, you know, created, uh, written and directed. Uh, and I do feel like there's a very common thread between all of his movies, although I can't actually tell you what it is. But I feel like his films have, well, they they have a lot of his sort of like soul within them, even if he's not directed them. Um and so one of my favorites is Never Let Me Go, which mm. he didn't direct. And that's based on, on a book. Um, and then also Alex wrote The Beach, which then was later adapted uh, by Danny Boyle. Um, but then, you know, more recently, uh, I haven't seen Men yet with, with Jesse Buckley. Um, uh, but yeah, um, many oh, of the pictures are very, very interesting. I can... I can see from Michael's side of the podcast the like the history and context side he's a really good shout because like there's so many interesting things like The Beach starting as a novelist a film that not many people like and then there's always the conversation about whether he did secretly direct Dread and then didn't take the credit for it and all of this stuff and I still haven't seen Annihilation so you haven't well because it was it had that very brief cinema release didn't it and, mm. and I was, I, I missed it there. And I'm now, because Dread was a film that I was very furious I didn't see in the cinema. Mm. And so I'm waiting for the chance to see it in the cinema. Of course, I could watch on Netflix whenever I'd like to, but um, I want the full experience of that. That's true. I watched Annihilation. I did watch it on a bigger screen, but I just watched it at home. Um, and I I did enjoy it, but I, I know that it's it's built for the big screen. Mm. And so... Yeah, I think that's, that's a really, really good wise. show. He's a really fascinating filmmaker and one of the few that we have that really works in thinky sci-fi high concept stuff. Yeah. Ooh, and we could do TV as well. Oh, this yes. Deus yeah, he did well. Devs. Yeah. yeah. Um and there oh yeah, his so his wife, uh Paloma Beza is directing a a film called The Toy Maker's Secret and he wrote it and it's an animation oh. uh, so I, it's like still in development you know early early doors but that could be interesting to research as well and look at how well yeah I mean at some point it will this be is a, this is a good pitch you're this is why you have a podcast in which you talk, <laughs> you have a film club <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just putting all of my own taste into this because I, I just really like him. But um, but I do think it would be good for you guys to do. I mm. think it would be good for you guys to do. I'd be up for that. Well, Maisie, what a recommendation to end on and what a conversation. It's been so lovely to have you in the Ghibliotech. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. And I'm going to watch Kiki's Delivery Service this weekend. Um, I'm in now. I get it. I'm in. <laughs> Thank you so much to Maisie for joining us for that chat and spending so much time nerding out about Ghibli, about animation and about so much more as well. What a treat. What a treat. And as well, I think this might be our first guest who's also as much of a podcaster as we are, Jake. So really great to get into the nitty gritty of having a podcast where the tone is about positivity, recommendations, you know, switching people onto the things you love. Yeah, and another great recommendation to add to our ongoing list as well as to what we could be covering in the future too. Um, so big thanks to her, but there's lots of other people we need to thank as well because we've had some people that have been kind enough to join us on our Patreon, which is, if you haven't seen it, patreon.com slash Ghibliotech, where we're doing bonus episodes and we've got a Discord channel and it's all lots of fun. And we want to thank a lot of those people that have joined us, don't we? We absolutely do. So we're going to start with thank you to Matthew Webb. Thank you to Jess Thomas. Thank you to Chihiro Yamada. And thank you to Adam Mitchell. Cheers, Robert Keeley. <laughs> thank you, Mark Hodsky. Thank you very much to Kappa Papa. 
And thank you, Christopher Dunn. Thank you so much to all of those patrons and all of our patrons who are joining us over on the Patreon. We're having so much fun over there. And yes, make sure you check it out if you feel like you might want to get a bit more out of Team Ghibli Attack. That's the place to go. And if you do want more out of Team Ghibli Attack, you can follow us on Twitter at Ghibli Attack. We're also on Instagram, GhibliAttack.pod. And individually as well, if you want to stalk us, we're all on Twitter. Steph is on Twitter at underscore Steph Watts. And you can follow Jake at JKH Cunningham. And you can follow Michael at Michael J. Leader. Ghibliotech is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ng. <laughs>